Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, philosophy, mythology, and pop culture podcast. If you couldn't tell, I am very, very, very excited to be here today. Stop the presses, everyone. Derek is excited to be here. I am exceptionally excited today. Today is a very special podcast. Today is a podcast that has been on my mind since we started podcasting. Today is a podcast that I have wanted to do for the entirety of The Midnight Myth, and we are waiting for the right time, the right moment, and also the right inspiration to fully tackle. Today is our Spider-Man podcast. It feels a long time coming, and especially for us in particular, who are very partial to Spider-Man as a character. I think the only character, the only superhero that we would give, uh, you know, a fighting chance against him is Batman. And it only took us like three Batman episodes to finally do a Spider-Man one. So when you say fighting chance in terms of like an actual battle, who oh, beats no, each other? just how much we like them. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Um, and their popularity level. So it, it feels, uh, you know, right that we're finally getting here and I'm sorry that it took us this long to get to Spider-Man because we love him so much. And a lot of Spider-Man things and Spider-Man related things have happened in the time that we've had this podcast. There's been, Two Spider-Man solo movies in Homecoming and Into the Spider-Verse. Right. We've seen Spider-Man in movies such as Civil War, as well as we've seen Spider-Man in Avengers Endgame. There's been Infinity a, War. I'm sorry, Avengers Infinity War, pardon me. There's been a killer Spider-Man video game on the PlayStation right. that I played and beat, and I do I never do this. I never do this. I'm going back and playing the game again on hard. I've never done that with a single video game I've ever beaten in my life. This is the first time doing it because I loved that game so much. And And I'm not a video gamer at all. And I will just sit and watch you play it sometimes because the story is so fascinating and because I love the character so much that it's actually fun to watch you play. 
So Spider-Man has been on my brain for a long time. And in particular, in recent history, it's been on my mind. We are going to talk all things Spider-Man. There is going to be a no-holds-barred discussion on Spider-Man media. We've been brushing up myself on comics. I have kind of fallen off of the comics and not kept up to date, so I wanted to catch up with a lot of different comics that are, A, both considered by the Spider-Man comic faithfuls, the comics you have to read if you love Spider-Man, and B, poking around on some of the, <clears throat> excuse me, poking around a little bit on some of the more recent um, iterations of Spider-Man. And uh, so take this as your spoiler wall. If you don't want Spider-Man narratives to be spoiled for you, don't listen to this. But I think we could take all Spider-Man media as a given. Yeah, absolutely. And before we jump in, of course, we want to have this conversation out with you in the universe. So if you have thoughts on our analysis of Spider-Man, if you want to hear more Spider-Man, uh, if there are things that you just can't wait to jump in and tell us uh, about Spider-Man, then please hit us up. We are on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We are also on Facebook and on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. And you can head over to our website, www.midnightmyth.com. Drop us a line there or check out some of the blog content we've been updating for the last couple of weeks. A few other announcements to plug before we jump into Spider-Man. Uh, if you are a... Uh, loyal subscriber, you've noticed that we have a new addition to the Midnight Myth feed, which is our bonus podcast, The Wheel of Ka, which is where Derek and our guest host, Steve, get together and are reading and recapping and analyzing every book in the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. They have two episodes up now uh, that you can check out on our feed. They're fantastic. If you're not familiar with the Dark Tower and you want to get into it, Definitely read along with us and join Derek and Steve to help make it a little easier for you to understand these characters as you go through it. They're doing fantastic work. You can also head over to the website uh, and we have links to all of the books and where to purchase them there. And at this time, we've also partnered with Audible. So if you want to, uh, you're obviously a podcast listener, so you like to hear things in your ear holes. If you want uh, the Dark Tower read to you by a fantastic narrator, check out Audible. Go to our website, www.midnightmyth.com and click on the Audible banner there. You'll actually get two free audiobooks when you sign up for a free trial. So I highly recommend it. Yeah, and I got my introduction to The Dark Tower vis-a-vis -vis Audible. I listened to the whole series and I can say unequivocally, it's freaking great. Absolutely. So make sure you check out Audible. Uh, and enjoy and read along with us. And without further ado, shall we move forward into Spider-Man? Spider-Man, Spider-Man does whatever. Bum, 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 bum. So I have a introductory question slash investigative lens that I put towards my Spider-Man research. And I have a fundamental question that I hope by the end of the podcast we will have answered. And I would like you listeners to tell us what you think about this question and if we answered it satisfactory to you. My question is this, why Spider-Man? Let me expand a little bit on the subtext of that question. Every culture has its heroes and those heroes often represent an aspect of the culture 
that it is representing vis-a-vis it is a reflection of the culture as well as that hero represents an aspirational vision by which the people in that culture want to aspire to. For example, the Dark Ages was a tough time with a lot of sword swinging and knights, and King Arthur was their hero, but he was also uber-civilized and really great at creating chivalry and the chivalric code. So if you are in the medieval world and King Arthur is your hero, it's because A, you want to be really great at swinging a sword the way King Arthur and Lancelot were, and B, you're aspiring to live the life of King Arthur and trying to be a noble, great leader. Ah, that's a great, that's a great example. Yeah, very simplistic, and we've talked about King Arthur a lot, so I'm not trying to rehash King Arthur. My question for you, Laurel, and for you listeners, why Spider-Man? I think we can take it as a given that Spider-Man is the most popular comic book character, not named Batman. Huge, hugely popular. Spider-Man has a long-running comics that started in the early 60s. He's had several TV shows, several cartoon shows, all of which have been successful. We have seen Spider-Man cast since the early 2000s. So for the last 20 years, essentially, we've seen three different Hollywood A-listers, debatable A-listers, but top Hollywood talents play the actor in three different iterations of the movie franchise. And every time Spider-Man's name is attached to something, people come out and they go and see it. My question for you, the introduction to this episode, why? Why Spider-Man? That's like the biggest question that we could start this with. And given that he has been around for so long and appeals to so many people uh, of all ages, makes it a really difficult question to answer and hone in on. But I think that uh, through our explorations as we've been preparing for this, we've uh, identified a few possibilities that help us to understand why. Um, For me, I know that personally... Spider-Man has always appealed to me as uh, a young person. Uh, Spider-Man is someone that I, and Peter Parker especially, is someone that I was I was able to relate to early on as the first blockbuster superhero movies that I ever saw uh, were Peter Parker as Spider-Man. You're talking about the Sam Raimi. Yeah. Okay. And I was able to be like, I'm a high school student. I have some of the same anxieties that Peter Parker does. I also have trouble balancing schoolwork with my, uh, you know, my romantic dreams or my creative endeavors. And I would love to find a way to balance those things and to watch Spider-Man or Peter Parker deal with those things can help you feel uh, a little bit comforted that even superheroes have to deal with with the same anxieties that you do. So I think that was very helpful for me beginning to align with him. And as a character who, um, so he was created by uh, Stan Lee and Steve Ditko in 1962. He premiered in a comic book called Amazing Fantasy Number 15. And I cannot imagine that the people reading those comic books were much older than I was when I saw the Sam Raimi movie. I think we all encountered him at a similar point in our adolescence, and we're able to say, oh, an adolescent superhero, someone who uh, is dealing with the you know, horrible crises that you go through in high school when your world seems 
like it's always on the precipice of ending. And in this crystallization, it actually is. And there is a, uh, a validation of my, uh, my struggles that I see in Peter Parker as he is trying to save the world from crumbling in on him, which I feel like I have to deal with every day as a high schooler. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes tons of sense. It's kind of a way into understanding why he's important to me. I think that you, that you've touched on a lot of great, interesting, and personal reasons. Would I ask in rebuttal to your response, not in a rebuttal, but I'm just curious, do you think that that, because that's your personal story with Spider-Man, do you think that there are others that share in that? Is there a commonality there between how you have viewed Spider-Man and how others have viewed Spider-Man? Do you think that's the secret sauce to why Spider-Man? I don't know if I can say like 100% this is it, but I have to imagine, and I don't know if your experience was similar when you first encountered him, but I have to imagine that a lot of us were excited to see, uh, you know, a different version of the superhero who was not a billionaire, who was not, uh, you know, a, a god fallen from, uh, from the stars, who was not uh, someone coming from another planet or... Uh, you know, inheriting this great mantle of of kingship underwater or on land or whatever it is. He was just a kid who had this thing thrown onto him. And it helps you to say like, okay, what would I do if this incredibly random act or this incredibly arbitrary thing just happened to spontaneously happen to me. You mean by him being he bit being by the radioactive spider? by a radioactive spider. I'm totally with you on in that respect. There is a symbolism of the radioactive spider. To me, spiders represent clear imagery. Most human beings find them repulsive or scary, and when they encounter them, they want to destroy them. However, spiders play a necessary ecological role in pest control and are actually really good for your environment. Yeah. So if you find a spider in your house, you probably shouldn't kill it, but our instinct is because we find them repulsive. What is Peter Parker pre-bite? What is Peter Parker before he has been bitten by the radioactive spider? And in most iterations, both in the comics and in the films, it's pretty consistent. He's a dork. <laughs> yeah. He is, he's yeah. me in high school. Me too. He's me before like, people realized I played the drums and was kind of cool. You know, like he is that kid that is a little bit awkward, not really good at sports, can't really talk to girls, really into science and really into studying the world, has habits like photography. This is like pre before being a photographer was really cool. Yeah. A kid in high school, when I grew up, if all they wanted to do was walk around and take pictures, they're that kid from American beauty. Exactly. That was exactly yeah. what I was going to say. They're like, who's this kid taking pictures all the time in the pre smartphone era where we all take a lot of pictures. So Peter Parker is, is both freak and geek. He is on the fringes and on the margins. He is a dork. And I say that is a term of endearment in the way that I was also a dork. Yeah, me too. Suddenly this ugly and terrible thing bites him. And based upon that bite, he transitions 
and almost overnight becomes a different person. There's many ways we can read this metaphorically. Right. Metaphor number one, puberty. that bite is puberty. Yeah. Suddenly your body grows, it changes, you have hormones, and you feel like a different person. You have a ton of energy one day, you have no energy the next day. You uh, can talk to the cute girl next to you and sound really smart and savvy, and then in the, the cute girl next to you in class, and then the next day you talk to her and you put your foot in your mouth because you're going through puberty. One other way to read it as well is that life itself is the spider and it will eventually bite you. And eventually there is a chaos, an unpredictable element that'll catapult you to the next phase of your life. It's largely out of your control. It's largely nothing that you had any say in and it will come to shape and define you like a web like the web of your life that is going to spiral out in multiple different directions. So the bite could be read as a puberty and B, it could also be read as the chaos and unpredictability of events that happen that ultimately help shape who you are. And these sort of interconnected web of your choices and how that propels you through your life. Your choices combined with the random events create a, a web, you would say, that you can only look backwards and say, this is how all of these different dots on this web connect. What makes Spider-Man interesting to me is despite all of this chaos and unpredictability, there is a level of consistency of character. Yes. Something that I myself didn't have as a teenager. Many times my character would falter and I would do something really fucking stupid or really fucking inappropriate because I was young and <clears throat> and trying to prove myself to the Mary Janes and Flash Gordons of the world. What makes Spider-Man amazing is that he never gives in. He stays consistently a good person throughout all of this. And to, to that's part of the secret sauce and that like, hey, he was a teenager and he was never a dick. He was a teenager and in love with his his neighbor and was always just a respectful, nice yeah. person the whole time. He never bullied anyone. He never he never gave in to the temptation of like, now that I'm Spider-Man. I can take revenge on all the people who have picked on me or yeah. Now that I'm cool, I can do what I want. I can be the star football player. I could do anything. No, he maintains a level of Peter Parkerness. He maintains a level of that inner dork in a way that is very aspirational because if all of us, at least all of us like Derek, who are listening to this podcast, they're like, <laughs> yay, Derek. If we look back at our teenage years, we've all done some repugnant shit. Yeah, absolutely. Peter Parker is not one of them. Well, so here's an, another interesting thing that I think sets uh, Peter Parker apart from other superheroes and also, uh, you know, takes that universal quality of us being like, oh, he's like me and says, no, actually, he's very unique and very singular and very aspirational. And that's that he conforms to certain chosen one narratives. Um, and what I mean by this is like, OK, so this 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 thing happens to him. He gets bit by a radioactive spider. He gets infused with these powers. He can climb walls. He can shoot webs. He has super strength and speed and dexterity, things that he didn't have before. And now he has a responsibility. 
what we'll come back to time and again is the most famous quote, most famous line from the Spider-Man narrative, which is, with great power comes great responsibility. All of a sudden, there is an expectation on this character. There is an obligation. There is a requirement that because he has what he has, because he's been bitten by this arbitrary spider, because he's been infused with these powers, he must exercise them. He must use them to elevate uh, the world around him. He must use those powers to save people or to exercise good in the world. So he aligns with or has inspired similar characters who have emerged in uh, literary and pop culture worlds, the, the two that I'm thinking of the most who are clearly indebted to Peter Parker in some ways are Buffy Summers and Harry Potter. These are other chosen ones who, due to no fault of their own, just some random act like being called to be the one slayer who can defeat vampires in the world or uh, you know, an evil dark lord coming after you when you're a baby, through that suddenly the weight of the world is on your shoulders. And you said something about like, okay, I fucked up a lot when I was, when I was Peter Parker's age, but Peter Parker doesn't fuck up and that's why he's aspirational. What I think is also tragic about that is that Peter Parker's and Buffy Summers and Harry Potter's really can't fuck up. They have to do the right thing all of the time and to not be afforded the ability to make mistakes, to not have the freedom to be irresponsible anymore in the most irresponsible time of your life, in the most reckless time of your life when you're supposed to be able to have fun and just impulse and pleasure principle all the way, you still have to be the one arbiting right and wrong. Interesting, interesting perspective. And I'm really glad that you brought that up. It makes me think of a few pieces of evidence that I think stand really in strong support of your narrative. The way Peter Parker gets to have fun is that he gets to make fun of the bullies as he beats the shit out of them. Right. So the rhino is there and he makes a, a wise crack. And so we get to see his youth and we get to see his fun nature in the way that he mocks and taunts the villains as he fights them, which is a hallmark Spider-Man characteristic that as far as I'm aware, did not exist in comics before Spider-Man. But then is clearly inherited by Buffy. Yeah, sure. But with contrast to the fun nature of Spider-Man that we see fighting the bad guy, that's like the high that he experiences. Yeah. It is almost invariably juxtaposed to the struggles of Peter Parker, that we get to see him have fun and have a sort of lack of responsibility in a teenager way in how he mocks his villains and how he ditches class to go be Spider-Man and how he gets to be this brave, awesome superhero. But there's always a, a price part of me to be paid when he is Peter Parker. Yeah. And in that way, that's a symbolism to the fun that teenagers have because teenagers often have fun that comes at a high consequence that they don't always see or understand. This is true when we see Peter Parker in Spider-Man two, for example, in the Sam Raimi series, this is where he is uh, unable 
to make it to a, to see Mary Jane on time because he's got to stop and catch, you know, the bad guys. This is true in Spider-Man Homecoming, the latest in the MCU Spider-Man installments where all of them are at a party. Everybody's having fun and he wants to go be Spider-Man, but his real fun is that he has to investigate the bad guys I don't know if these pieces of evidence are actually standing up to my thesis, but you get where I'm going. Yeah, no, it makes sense, but it, it offers a, a, a sort of compelling paradox of, of the Peter Parker Spider-Man dynamic. So you mentioned, you know, quipping and being sort of reckless and fun and youthful behind the mask as this thing that sort of frees him from the anxieties of being Peter Parker. But at the same time, once he's, once he's, gotten rid of the suit once he's shed the skin of spider-man being spider-man is what creates and compounds the anxieties of being peter parker and the anxieties of being peter parker compound the anxieties of being spider-man uh there's an interesting question to be drawn when we look at the way that um characters and their superhero alter egos are uh depicted in any comic book universe. And I think that the Spider-Man Peter Parker dynamic is a really fascinating one because while, you know, clearly one is a secret identity, uh, they constantly bleed into one another and affect the other's ability to succeed. I can recall a time when I was working one of my first quote unquote professional jobs Yeah, in a period where I had transitioned and was transitioning out of youth into adulthood and this job that I had, I despised. And we've all been there. We've gone to work every single day at a place that we don't like being, in a company we don't agree with the mission, and answering to a supervisor or a boss that we don't respect and they don't respect us. And I did this shit for fucking two years. Yeah. And it was miserable. And I had this identity crisis And I realized that I go to my job because I'm a positive person that wants to make a positive influence on the people that I'm around. I pretend that I'm happy. And I asked myself at one point after doing this for a while, and I'm like, who am I really? I spend 40 hours of of every single week pretending to be someone I'm not. I spend less time being the person that I think I actually am. Most of my life, I'm faking. Who am I actually? Am I the person I think I am? Or am I really this fake person that I spend more time with, that I interact with more people? And this ultimately led to me reshuffling a lot of priorities and changing my life. But it was the core sort of identity crisis that I had just leaving the sort of yoke of youth and entering into the yoke of professionalism. Spider-Man is very instructive. And one of the reasons I think he resonates so well right now is a lot of people have that feeling and they have that, that pressure where they see a world they want to interact in, they want to make a positive influence in, they want to be a positive person in this world but yet it's really hard and it's not at all simple. And there are major little structural or influential or philosophical impediments to you being able to feel successful. And you just might want a Spider-Man and swing from building to building and take beautiful pictures. 
but you don't have a way to pay the rent. You don't have a way to take care of your aunt who is lonely because she is a widow, because it's your fault. Meanwhile, you can't be with the woman you love because that woman you love is going to be a target to your enemies. And all of these things are compounding and compounding. And you have to stop at some point and be like, who the fuck am I actually? Right. What kind of fucking person am I? Like, I've got all of these 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 contrary pressures and roles and I'm trying to be this person and I feel like that person and I sometimes I need to be this third person and all of those things combined onto you and they can then that pressure is legitimate and I it doesn't really matter who you are in American society it doesn't matter where you come from that's something that I think many of us, if not most of us, go through. I think that's the secret sauce of Spider-Man. Ah, uh, yeah, I, I do too. I really appreciate you sharing that kind of personal uh, anecdote there because I think a lot of us can relate to that idea of like having a personal self and a professional self or having different masks that you have to wear uh, within, uh, you know, various scenarios throughout your life, uh, ways that you have to present yourself to others in order to survive. And while our stakes may not be as life and death as fighting Doc Ock or the Green Goblin, they feel uh, deeply personal to us and they feel immediate and they feel urgent. I'd like to point out a few things in that point, though, yeah. because I agree with you. Doc Ock, you mentioned... Green Goblin, you mentioned, both people of more success, more prominence, people of the older generation, people that are characters that are both often mentors or father figures to either Peter and his friends. They're more successful in their fields, in particular in Norman Osborn, who runs Oscorp and is a multimillionaire, and yet they are also these horrible monsters. And while we are wrestling with the transition of one generation to another, there will often be a Dr. Octopus or a green goblin standing in the way of the Spider-Man saying, no youth, you're not allowed to the party. You can't come here. We're going to hold you down. We're going to hold you back. And in fact, we fucking despise you. Oh my God. Well, yeah, yes. Uh, And, you know, this speaks to a kind of contemporary renaissance that we're having with Spider-Man now. Not that Spider-Man ever like disappeared in his popularity, but now that we're like re-examining what it means to be him and putting Tom Holland in the role in Marvel or, uh, you know, experiencing Miles Morales for the first time on screen in Into the Spider-Verse, we're seeing what it looks like to be a millennial Spider-Man Uh, which I think speaks really powerfully to the character and resonates with him uh, in, in a really urgent and current way Uh, that, you know, for me, like I have dreams and I have ambitions and I have things that I would love to be able to do, but I have to work so that I can pay my student loans and, and mortgage mortgage and taxes. And like that each of us carries with us, this incredible amount of pressure and anxiety about who we're supposed to be, what we were supposed to get. Um, there's a great, great line in Spider-Man two, which we continue to reference where Peter Parker says, am I not supposed to have the things that I want? 
And the answer is like, no, Spider-Man says you can't have the things that you want because you're Spider-Man. And for millennials, I think a lot of us are feeling uh, the same way that, that that feels. It's like we're burning the candles at both ends uh, just so that we can survive. And when are we going to have time to have the things that we want? Um, it's kind of a painful realization. And I, I don't mean to, to say that, you know, Spider-Man is only a millennial superhero, but that's the way that it resonates with me today. Well, I think there's a way to make that argument a little more universal and a right. little less specific to one generation. Because if our reading of Spider-Man is correct and listeners tell us what you think, maybe it isn't. But if it is correct, why so many generations of Spider-Man fans? Right. I think the answer to that is pretty clear. As every adolescent makes their way to adulthood, they are going to buck up to the generation that is already there in adulthood. And there is oftentimes in America very little cognitive space for culturally both to exist side by side. Right. Very rarely is this generational transition from the older to the younger smooth. In particular, since the 60s. Yeah. When Spider-Man was first written. Previous to that, you could make the argument that it was a little smoother. Now, there's certainly historical bumps in that road. There was a time when Americans, I don't know, killed each other in a civil war. So we, we don't always have these smooth transitions from one generation to the next, from one leader to the next. It's wrought with warts and it's imperfect. But since the 60s, there has been a part of American culture where youth and age have kind of had a little antipathy, yeah. pushing against each other a little harder than you would have previously. And granted, I'm being super generalizing with American history, but because since the 60s that has been more consistent than it has been in previous generations, Spider-Man has represented that adolescent hero to all of us subsequently, because we've all been in this position where we're like, hey man, there's a lot of crime. Well, we don't need to just kill everyone. Let's just put them in a web and web yeah. shoot them. <laughs> or, you know, like, and whatever yeah. that, that narrative is, every generation has been able to put their spin on the Spider-Man narrative because every generation has had youth growing up, being young, trying to figure out their way in the world and how much... That fucking implicitly sucks. Yeah. And then you got a bunch of old supervillains standing in your way trying to fucking destroy the world. Ah, oh, fucking supervillains always standing in my way. Some of them are the Green Goblin. Others are Betsy DeVos. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. To to bring it quite home. Um, I, if, if you're okay with it, I want to pivot a little bit because Let's pivot. Uh, we've, we've talked kind of generally about why Spider-Man resonates and some of the characters that we think are sort of created in his image. But I want to go uh, you know, further back. I want to rewind a little bit and talk about some of the influences that I see on Spider-Man. And I'm going to actually take it back to Shakespeare because I think that Peter Parker in particular is a very Shakespearean character. Do it. Um, so I said before that, of course, the most famous resounding line from Spider-Man is with great power comes great responsibility. 
And as we were preparing for this podcast, I was like, you know what that fucking reminds me of is uh, Shakespeare's plays Henry IV, parts one and two. Uh, if you're not familiar with these particular plays, they're from uh, Shakespeare's history plays, which he wrote um, chronicling the transfer of power in England through various famous monarchs. Uh, so it goes all the way through the War of the Roses and up to the Tudors. And it's a fascinating series of plays. And the Henry IV plays are some of my favorites. Um, the main character of the Henry IV plays, at least as we you know critique them today, is actually not Henry IV himself, but Prince Hal, who will later become Henry V, probably Shakespeare's most, um, most noble historical hero. Shakespeare titled his history plays based on the ruling monarch of the time that he was covering rather than necessarily the principal character. So while these plays chronicle the rebellions brought against you know, the ruling regime of King Henry IV, it's really us watching the path of the future King Henry V come into his own. So it's a coming-of-age story of sorts. Um, Prince Hal's arc is one of a reckless, wild youth to someone responsible enough to wear the crown of England. And he really is concerned with how do I become the kind of person who can actually carry this mantle? Um, he spends much of the first play, uh, part one, drinking in pubs with a an immensely popular character named Falstaff, who is a lovable, caring person, but he is a clearly not a good influence. He is lazy, he's a drunk, he's a lech, he's just a completely terrible role model for a future king. So he makes me think of the... Uh, the various role models that Peter Parker will have throughout his time, like Norman Osborn or like um, Otto Octavius, who uh, seem like someone who cares about you and will take you under their wing, but actually are the worst possible influence for you in the end, when the person who could give you what you need, the Uncle Ben's or the King Henry IV, who will say things like, with great power comes great responsibility, or in the Henry IV plays, uneasy lies the head that wears a crown, a very similar line, I think, are relegated to background characters or are taken from you too early. Hal gives us a really famous speech early in part one where he explains, yeah, I'm acting like a really dumb, irresponsible kid right now, but it's only going to show all the people who doubt me now how great I am later when I sort of come into my own and start acting more thoughtfully. But I think the, the comparison between these two characters is that the, the tension inherent to being a kid and having that opportunity to make mistakes, having that opportunity to learn and stumble and fall and hang out with all the wrong people and not always think through your actions, but also having great expectations placed on you that invalidate that necessary formative experience, it lines up really nicely with Peter Parker's anxieties. Um, another thing that I think is sort of an excellent parallel to the Sam Raimi tellings, especially in how we see the foiling between Peter Parker and Harry Osborn, is that in these Henry IV plays, we're set up with a similar rivalry and a similar dynamic between Prince Hal, whose name is Henry, also sometimes known as Harry Monmouth, and another character who is a very hot-headed vengeful guy named Hotspur, 
or Harry Percy. So we have literal Harrys side by side who are fighting for who is going to be the dominant uh, ruler of this nation, one who eventually will come into a more clear-headed self and the other who is driven by revenge. And I think that lines up really nicely with what we see between uh, Peter Parker and Harry Osborn um, as the sort of the person who will inherit the moniker of the Green Goblin, who will be the one to take the torch of the privileged generation over you know, what Peter Parker represents. I just think there's some interesting parallels there, and it infuses this Spider-Man world with the weight of Shakespeare, with the weight of great lines like, uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. And I think that with great power comes great responsibility is as Shakespearean a sentiment as any. Wow, love that. I I love everything that you're saying right there. It's easy for us as contemporary pop culture intellectuals and storytelling anthropologists to say this is Shakespearean, quote unquote. And for the most part, when people discuss Shakespeare now, they discuss it academically. They discuss yeah. it about, uh, I've gone to a play where, you know, it's really exclusive and elite and everyone there is either, you know, upper class or super intellectual hipster, you know, and we forget that Shakespeare was in his time pop culture. He was comic books. Yeah. He was the thing that the common people fucking loved. Yeah. Groundlings. And those, those lines that resonate then become the building blocks of epic poetry of the future. And with great power comes great responsibility is a, is a Shakespearean line in that respect. It's the line that a hundred years from now, 200 years from now, when people talk about Spider-Man, they're going to be talking about that line. And I really love those connections that you're able to, to piece there. And like any great Shakespearean passage or piece of poetry, it can be interpreted in countless ways, right? So the easiest way we can take that is like, you are able to do something that most people aren't able to do, and therefore you should do good things with it. You are obligated to do good things with it. That's probably the easiest way to take that line. But I think every iteration of Spider-Man tries to interrogate that from a different lens. And as we're talking about Spider-Man 2, we start to hear Peter uh, equate the fact that he's chosen a life of responsibility with, you know, responsibility meaning not following your desires and dreams and putting other people ahead of, of your own desires. And also the word responsible as he's talking to Aunt May and saying, I'm responsible for Uncle Ben's death means to blame. So he internalizes this idea of responsibility um, as not just I have a higher calling, but like I have great torture inside me. And it's it's kind of tragic to see that worked out, but I think it's necessary for the character to work through. Absolutely. You know, in that, I love that you're connecting it back to Shakespeare. I've had a longstanding theory that at least three of the main Avengers have clear antecedents in Greek heroes. Yeah. That theory is that Tony Stark, Iron Man, is Achilles, that Hercules and the Hulk are the same character, Ooh. and that 
Perseus and Captain, Captain America, America are all the same character and that, that they have these clear parallels. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this theory on the podcast before, but it's a theory that I've had when I was just getting into the, in particular, the MCU and looking at the Robert Downey Jr., Chris Evans, and then Edward Norton now slash um, Mark Ruffalo. Mark Ruffalo. Thank you very much. Incarnations of these characters. I'm like, wow, those three characters are heavily based on Greek mythology. Yeah. Thor obviously is based on Norse mythology, so yeah. that doesn't count. But that got me thinking a lot about other great MCU characters and thinking, what's their antecedent or their inspiration in Greek mythology? Could all of the Avengers be written or read, pardon me, as a metaphor based upon Greek heroes? Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. Spider-Man was a particular challenge for me that I did want to talk about in this episode. Yeah, if you'll per- permit another, yes, let's go know, mythological. An- another pivot. One, Spider-Man's powers are based upon a radioactive spider. It is based upon something that is fundamentally modern. Yeah. It's about an experimentation based upon radioactive technology that could mutate a spider, and that spider could somehow pass on this radioactiveness in, in a way that could then mutate Peter Parker so that he could have these special and amazing abilities. On face value... There's nothing at all like that in Greek mythology. Right. It's purely fucking modern. There's no parallel. But when digging under the surface, there are a few things that I think are interesting, not direct metaphors. I mean, Hercules and the Hulk are the same person. That's really easy. Iron Man and Achilles, same person. Really easy. Perseus and Captain America, same person. Really easy. But I'm going to per- permit me a little leavance. Yeah, Absolutely. I would argue that Spider-Man is the Athena of the MCU. What? Yeah. So Athena is an interesting character in that she is a very prominent and important goddess, but not the most important goddess. In none of the great myths is Athena front and center. In, when I say great myths, that, that's not true. When I say myths that involve the entire pantheon of Olympians. Okay, yeah. Crossover events. (laughs) The big stories with all of the gods, Athena is there. She's important. She's rarely the most important. Yeah. But in her own individual myths, she is incredibly important. Athena is a goddess of two things in particular. I actually don't like when we talk about, oh, you're the god or goddess of this. That's not actually how it works. Yeah. People worship the goddesses and gods in different manifestations for different reasons. And these different manifestations had different powers. Plus then they were also told myths. We contemporaries, we kind of link them and say- We try to reduce it a little bit. Well, they say, oh, because, you know, before you went to war, you worshiped at Mars. And there's a story about Mars being a great warrior and a myth. Obviously that means he's the god of war. It's not that simple. And also, it's also much simpler Different gods meant different things to different people at different times. Yeah. And there's no orthodoxy by which we can be governed saying Athena is this goddess. Uh, Zeus is this god. Anyway, side tangent. Athena is known for two main things in, in the mythological tradition. She's known for one, wisdom. Mm-hmm. What is Peter Parker if not wise? Right. And not wise in the Dungeons and Dragons, the wisdom attribute. Wise in the fact that wisdom in the ancient world meant fucking smart. Yeah. 
Athena is smart. She's crafty. She knows how to use technology. She knows how to apply her intelligence in pragmatic situations. Peter Parker is that check mark. The other thing that she's known for is skill at battle. Well, what is Spider-Man if not a fucking warrior? Yeah. And not one of the best warriors. His powers give him almost infinite confident prowess. He is the combination of both wit and strength in that the spider sense giving that precognition allows him to outthink and outplan his enemies, which he can do with an instinctual nature, much like Athena. Also, Athena is prominent in one particular myth that lines up really well with Spider-Man, and that's with Arachne. Yeah. And that is where Athena is challenged to a duel to make the best, oh God. It's I like forget. a tapestry. Arachne is a really talented weaver who thinks that she's better than even the goddesses. And Athena comes down and says, oh, you think you're better than me? And they, they do a challenge, and it turns out that Arachne is not as good as Athena. And what does she become? A spider. The first spider. The first spider whose descendants will always be spiders. And also always be arachnids. Yeah. It's where we get the name arachnid from. So Athena is directly linked to the origin of spiders. And then even more, I think this is where we really get Athena-ness in Spider-Man. Athena is most prominently known for a city. Yeah. That city is Athens. Athens is her city. In the mythic tradition, her and Poseidon are competing for the patronage of Athens, and she wins. Um, Poseidon gives him the ability to be very good at seamanship and very good at navy, which is really great. Athena gives them the olive so that they can grow food and that they can create the olive branch. They can create diplomacy. They can olive create oil. Olive oil, they can create philosophy. They can create knowledge. And because of that, Athens becomes one of, if not the most important ancient Greek cities in the way that Spider-Man is so fundamentally New York. Yeah. He's the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. It's important to remember that in the ancient world, much of the, the worshiping of different gods and goddesses and heroes was local it's what it was not this big, great, amazing religion that everyone celebrated the same way in every place, like we know religion to be today, but rather they were individual local religions. And Athens was dedicated to Athena and the worship of Athena. And Athena was the Athenian hero, very much in the way that Spider Man is the New York hero. I love that connection so much because there is something about uh, Spider-Man that is emblematic of New York, that is emblematic of a local deity or a local hero um, who, you know, we we see this play out, especially in uh, Spider-Man Homecoming, where he's finally invited to join the Avengers and he actually chooses to be the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. He chooses to, you know, save the people whose bikes are getting stolen, or he chooses to be there for the people of New York because they've come to count on him. But that relies on an exchange. That relies on, you know, people to invest a certain amount of faith and belief and trust in him so that he can serve back with protection and grace. And I think a scene that really beautifully uh, embodies that 
in Spider-Man 2 is the uh, subway scene where he is uh, trying to stop the train that is going off the rails and about to hit the end of the line and go into the river. It's uh, a, an incredibly suspenseful action scene where he's expending the last of his strength after just getting his powers back to save a bunch of strangers on a subway train. And as the train finally slows down and he runs out of energy and is about to fall, we focus in on his chest and we see him about to careen forward and a hand stops him and another hand stops him and people just catch him. And there is a uh, just a very powerful symbol that's inherent in that gesture that just says very gently, I've got you. And I think to, to see Spider-Man be given that validation and that like, I see everything that you've done for me and now I will do the only gesture that I can for you that I think is important to that exchange that makes him the Athena, that makes him the local deity or makes him the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man because he would do anything for New York and turns out New York would do anything for him. Bad fucking ass. Yeah, I, I love that you drew that connection because it's it's not linear, it's not obvious, but I think- And it's not a one-for-one one comparison, yeah, but it has I, its faults. I think it reaches to some of the most important things about the character, and I think that's more important than saying, you know, they look similar or they have really similar, um, you know, plot or myth arcs. I think it cuts down to what it means to be Spider-Man, which is to stick your neck out for the little guy. And ancient Greece needed its protector and its protector reflected ancient Greece. So in, I'm sorry, ancient Athens needed its protector. And that ancient Athenian was a warrior. It was someone who was wise, but was someone that used that wisdom pragmatically and someone that gained great prosperity to this uh, nation state, or pardon me, this city state of Athens. Much in the way that New York needed its hero, especially in the 60s, in which we are talking about a time that had a lot more crime, that had a lot more social uprest and unheaval than we have today. And it needed someone who could swing around and tell a joke and be sarcastic, who was young and optimistic and still represented and confronted the generational gaps that were happening with humor, humility, and strength. Uh, Just as as a final thought here, as uh, as we're wrapping up, um, I love Spider-Man. I I really do. I think there is just something... You've continued to say special sauce throughout tonight, and I, I think that's one of the only ways we could really identify this because as much as we try to break apart why Spider-Man means something to us, he touches something deep down within every single one of us who loves him uh, that is deeply personal. And what I just want to offer here is look out for your hometown heroes. If there is someone in your life who uh, goes through a lot or has a lot of responsibility uh, or carries so much expectation and doesn't get the recognition that you think they deserve or that they think they deserve, look out for them. Offer a simple gesture. Say, I've got you. Offer to help out. Um, Recognize the people in your life who are doing 
more than they think they can uh, and celebrate that. Time for a boomerang. Whoa, okay. Throwing it out here. A thing that I'd like to mention here, even though we're at the tail end of the podcast, that I think is worth mentioning when we talk about why Spider-Man. Okay. Spider-Man and Batman as characters, if we understand and dig into the mythology, anthropology, and sociology of the comic book itself, and then the Uh comic book genre writ large out of the actual books, have one thing in common. And they are both the most powerful superheroes. Well, they have a few things in common, but the one thing in common that I'm thinking of is that they have the most colorful, vibrant, and interesting antagonists of comic book heroes. Yeah. And I think it's worth giving a nod that every single great villain of Spider-Man is shaped by and formed by Spider-Man. They exist mostly because Spider-Man exists. Yeah. Like they wouldn't be there if there was no Spider-Man. And they are both these horrible doubling and vicious othering and the dark side of Spider-Man-ness is often represented in his villains. And this is true from the more commonly known, such as the Green Goblin and Dr. Octopus, down to the less commonly known, like Kraven, who I think is very much a Spider-Man equal and opposite. Or Venom, or, yeah. And even in um, Vulture, the Sinister Six, the fact that, like, six supervillains got together to try to stop Spider-Man so they could take over the city is a testament to what a great hero he is because a great hero needs great villains to defeat and to butt up against. And Spider-Man has some of the best villains of all comic books. The only other character that rivals the villains, the rogues gallery of the Spider-Man comics is Batman. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the things that makes them stand out, makes those villains stand out, is that they usually offer a philosophical art alternative to the pain that Spider-Man feels. And yet, Spider-Man still chooses the path of responsibility and the path of right over wrong and the path of doing the right thing over pursuing his own interests, which he's so often offered by those villains. So I, I thank you for pointing that out here I at the end. I just wanted to throw yeah. that in at the very end of the podcast My final thought is very simple, guys. Until next time, be kind. And with great power comes great responsibility. Mic check one Mike two. Jack, Mike one check two. one two. Mike check one two. Three Mike four one two. Mike one two. Check one two. Mike seven check eight one two. Mike four check ten one two. Mike twelve check twenty two. Thirty five one two. Eleven check one two. Seven D eleven D one two three Spider-Man. Let's actually just talk in for a second. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that sounds fine. I mean, it's really quiet because you're like a quiet, but that's okay with me. It's not quiet.